there's a huge cost out there. There's a huge health cost to what we've done and that's going to be ongoing. And it would be completely unscientific to ignore that and to not make it. And that's what has frustrated me from the start. Well, hang on a minute. Are we really doing the right thing? So welcome everybody to Voices for Freedom. We're here today with Alia, um, Libby and myself, and we're speaking with Alison um, Goodwin about Alison's story, how she came to be a GP and maybe how she became a bit of a rebel GP, thoughts about how we could be um, dealing with the current situation that we have. So welcome, Alison, and yes, let us know a little bit more about you and um, your background. Uh, I grew up in rural Northland. Uh, in two different places, um, running around the farm, going to beaches and, and such like. Uh, and then I went to med school straight from school uh, and I went to Otago University and did three uh, preclinical years uh, down in Dunedin. And then I had a year off to travel and went overseas and roamed around Europe for a year uh, and came back and went to Wellington Clinical School for three years uh, and then started work as a house surgeon. And I did that in Hawke's Bay for two years. Then I traveled overseas again. I went overseas and worked in the UK um, in various places for about 18 months and then came back to Hawke's Bay again and uh, worked in the emergency department. Uh, So I worked in the emergency department for about 10 years while I had my children. So I was interspersed with maternity leave during that time. And then in about 2007, emergency, so I wasn't a specialist, I was a medical officer in the emergency department. Uh, And during the time I worked there, emergency medicine became a specialty in its own right. And so um, a number of specialist trained doctors then uh, came to run the department and they wanted to change my working hours from, well, from between eight in the morning and midnight, they wanted me to start doing night shift. And I was already doing night shift at home with the baby. So (laughs) I thought, right, time to get out of here. And my husband had done the first seven years uh, at home of parenting, um, being a full-time dad, and he'd had enough of that. So I swapped roles. And in 2007, I I had 18 months off from mid-2007 to the end of 2018, uh, 2008 rather. Um, And then I thought, oh, right, well, if I'm going to carry on being a doctor, I better do some sort of training now. So general practice was the main, you know, the sort of thing to do with kids at home. uh, So I didn't have to travel and could be a bit flexible about my hours. So I started the GP training in 2009 uh, and eventually finished jumping through all the hoops to become a fellow of the college in 2015. And so I've been doing general practice for the last 10 years, uh, part-time because I've been being a mum as well. Um, And I resigned at the end of October this year uh, because I was getting far too stressed and disillusioned with the system. And it wasn't specifically COVID. It was even, uh, you know, it was prior to COVID, just the uh, overload of uh, paperwork that GPs have to deal with, the lack of time that GPs have with their patients, and just the focus of the whole health system on managing chronic disease and not focusing on health and well-being. And I'd got to a place where I felt like I was um, selling my soul to prop up a broken system, really. And so I thought, right, I've got to have a summer holiday. (laughs) So I'm having a summer. I'm doing a bit of online work for an insurance company just to pay the bills uh, currently, but um, having a bit of a break from standard general practice. And uh, so in the meantime as well, just, I mean, this this year, um, 
I found an organization, uh, Lifestyle Medicine, Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. So I've been studying with them and I set their exam uh, at the beginning of November and passed that exam. So I'm hoping to be able to use those skills to help people, you know, help people and encourage people with health and well-being mm. in the future. But I'm not quite sure because it's not the general practice isn't set up in a way that's conducive to encouraging health at the moment. So that's where I'm at. I'm un well, I'm not, not currently working as a GP, but I intend to work again in the health field. Uh -huh. So lifestyle medicine is focusing really on the basics. It should be called fundamental medicine. It's about what you eat, how you exercise, how you manage your stress, how you sleep, those things, the basics, the basics of health and well-being is lifestyle medicine. Integrative medicine will, you know, do a bit of that sort of thing uh, and will add you know, more de like lifestyle medicine is not specifically into the fine details of nutrients, individual nutrients. It's more about eating real food. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas integrative medicine will add in, you know, it might add in acupuncture and yoga and various other things, which, you know, are potentially useful. Lifestyle medicine is not specifically that. Functional medicine sort of has a foundation of lifestyle medicine. You, you've got to work on, you know, what you eat, what you, how you manage your stress, how you sleep how you exercise but then they go a bit further with um optimizing gut function and optimizing all the organ systems of the body using specific nutrients uh, and maybe dietary supplements dietary changes uh, so it's a sort of it's another layer really on top of lifestyle medicine i think functional medicine but i think it's yeah. useful you know particularly for autoimmune conditions people that want to reverse autoimmune conditions uh, you know ordinary standard medicine has a whole lot of poisonous drugs to treat autoimmune conditions. Whereas if I personally had an autoimmune condition, I'd be thinking, well, why have I got this? What can I do to optimize my function? And that's what functional medicine does. We'll uh, deal with that. And particularly with gut issues, you know, a lot of gastroenterologists, they'll do the uh, endoscopies, the gastroscopy from the top and the colonoscopy from the bottom, find nothing wrong. Their blood tests will be normal and say, look, you haven't got a problem. Whereas people are bloated and people are uncomfortable and, things don't feel right and you know it can be an imbalance of the bacteria or it can be that you're eating the wrong food and functional medicine is really good for that um, area so I'm interested but I haven't done specific training yet. Lifestyle medicine sounds like it would be quite empowering for people just to be able to use the tools that they've got readily available yeah. to them. Well just to know that actually mm -hmm. type 2 diabetes you, you know it's not a death sentence you don't have to follow the footsteps of your father or your mother or whoever ended up on dialysis from it you know you can change it you can reverse it you can get rid of it yeah. uh, if you're motivated and if you're willing to make changes uh, it doesn't yeah, type 2 diabetes is preventable and reversible and the average person doesn't know that uh, and the average doctor, maybe the average doctor doesn't realize that or and certainly doesn't. And, and the, you know, there's not the capacity in the health system yeah. in our 15 minute appointments to empower people. It's all very well giving them the knowledge that that's possible, but actually to help people make those changes, you know, when they're battling a society where Coca-Cola and McDonald's are readily available, where it's easier to get in your car than on your bike. You know, society is not set up to, to help people. It's, it's set up to help people fail um so yes and how have you were you aware of the fit and gary fit in australia um, and forbidden to mention diet they said that that was outside the scope of his practice he's an orthopedic surgeon who oh my goodness <laughs> going in his 
you know, his voluntary work was to go to the islands and be amputating limbs because of diabetes. So mm. he was naturally wanting to speak to all his clients about the benefits. And one of the things was about how a low carb approach could assist. Mm. Have you come across that where you've been told that, you know, nutrition wasn't within the scope? I think you mentioned before you haven't really brought it up, but is it something that you've wanted no, 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 I haven't been told it's not within the scope, but I've had a colleague when I worked in the emergency department and I'm seeing all the kiddies uh, come in with cellulitis, skin infections or coming in with pneumonia. And then I'm looking at what the mums are bringing in with them. And it's a bottle of chocolate milk or it's a bottle of Coca-Cola that they're feeding a two-year-old baby. And I've said to a colleague, well, look, I mean, don't you think we should be thinking about what they're bringing in with the kids? And he said, oh, don't be silly, Alison. Food's got nothing to do with it. And I thought, oh, really? <laughs> So, I mean, some doctors would go that far to say that nutrition has nothing to do with your health. <laughs> Whereas for me, nutrition, I mean, your body's made from the food you eat. So how can it not, I mean, it's fundamental to your health as far as I'm concerned. But I mean, if this whole business is about health this year, for me, and I've been the same as for years, if I was the Minister of Health, the single, the one single thing that would potentially halve, I mean, I don't know, I haven't done the maths exactly, but I imagine it could potentially half our health budget would be to get fizzy drinks and sugar-sweetened beverages off our supermarket shelves because our country is paying a fortune for dialysis. And not everyone, but a significant proportion of people that are on dialysis are on dialysis because of type 2 diabetes. And that's completely preventable. And, our, you know, as taxpayers, we're all paying for that. Mm. Uh, and, I mean, yeah, you could use that money much better elsewhere. But, uh, you know, if we can ground in New Zealand, can't we get rid of sugar? <laughs> can't well, we get rid of Coca-Cola? <laughs> Even if we don't take them off the shelves, at least have sort of some society messaging like we have for smoking mm. around these things, particularly this year. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because a lot of people's immunity will be lower. I mean, sugar will lower your immunity. And so, the, I mean, I've got patients that are drinking five litres of Coca-Cola a day. It's a lot. I mean, I'm wasting my time trying to treat yeah. diabetes in that situation. I mean, no amount of diabetes drugs is going to change that. And I would imagine that the more stressed people are under, the more they're going to reach for these sorts yeah. of things. So, I mean, we all know it to be true, I think, don't we? Uh, from, uh, yeah, reaching for easy, quick Things that will boost your energy there and then, but yes, yeah. have long-term, you know, significant long-term consequences. Simon, who'd been involved with Simon Thornley, he's been involved with that Fizz group previously, and they've actually done a paper, which probably will tell us, so I'll probably find it and link it in the comments about what, what the savings to the health system would be, because they were looking at putting a tax on sugary drinks. Yeah. If you were the Director General of Health, Alison. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I mean, just, yeah, those basic things we've already mentioned, they're just real food eating fruit and vegetables eating real food drinking water avoiding you know the sugar sweetened beverages sunshine for vitamin d fresh air and exercise you know all of those things together i mean individually and in combination will make a significant difference to your immune system you know mm -hmm. and we could be doing that we could have spent the last six to nine months you know because I, I mean obviously for some people i mean i'm speaking from a privileged position i can afford fresh fruit and vegetables uh and I can afford time to get outside and get some exercise. Whereas a lot of people, you know, they can't, uh, or, or their fruit and vegetables not available or not readily available within easy distance of where they're going. But I mean, surely could we not be in communities where fruit and veggie consumption is low or hard to access and actually making sure, I mean, in Hawke's Bay each year, apples rot on the ground. And I think, oh, there's people that could do with those apples. <laughs> 
And I mean, I don't know what's happening this summer with the fruit not being able to be picked, but surely we need to be making sure that that fruit and veggies that our farmers and orchardists are growing actually gets to our population to enhance their health. So I'd be focusing on that, but, but also the sunshine. I mean, in Hawke's Bay in April, I mean, it's nice and sunny down here generally and we have nice weather. And I mean, I thought oh, shutting the beaches and shutting our cycle paths and taping up the playgrounds what were we doing? Or why would you do that? I mean, surely people need to be outside in the sunshine, in the fresh air, getting some exercise. And I did not get that. I think we should be getting outside. <laughs> so that, yeah, food, exercise, but I mean, social connection, that's another thing that personally, I think human beings are social creatures, and we actually need social interaction. I don't think social isolation enhances our health i mean it may reduce spread of bugs but i mean what what's the risks and benefits you know is there more benefits from being socially connected and being supported and being hugged than there are risks of catching a bug i mean i don't know i don't know that anyone's specifically done that but to my mind an elderly grandparent in a rest home heaven forbid actually needs people that care about her to see her and to give her hugs and not to be separated from her grandkids in the last months or years of her life. Mm. But yeah, that's potentially controversial, I guess, because you do spread bugs to them and they are more vulnerable, but. Yeah. yeah, but then we come back to the argument that if you can circulate it amongst the people that can manage it, then those mm. people are going to be at less risk. But if you slow the whole thing down, those people are going to be at more risk because they essentially everyone sort of leveled out in terms of mobility that their risk will increase as everyone else's risk goes down. Have I got that right, Claire? You were talking about that with Ivor the other day. Yeah, um, Ivor Cummings, he did explain that was quite interesting about if you keep locking away healthy people, the virus then is not able to circulate amongst those that are healthy and then build up and get faster to that herd immunity. Yes. So therefore, in the long term, it's actually showing that more vulnerable people will be taken earlier than would be the case if you just not locked away the healthy people. Yes, our immune systems uh, should be stimulated on a yeah. daily basis. I mean, we're seeing that with um, chickenpox and the shingles vaccine and immunizing the kids for chickenpox means that, you know, people that have had chickenpox usually rely on coming into contact with kids, you know, people our age with chickenpox, mm -hmm. you know, will come into contact with kids with chickenpox and that'll boost our immunity. Uh, but if we're vaccinating all the kids for chickenpox and we're not being regularly exposed to chickenpox just to boost our immunity, then we're going to be or are more prone to getting shingles, mm. you know, which is reactivation of the chickenpox because our immune system, our immunity's uh, waned over time. You know, so you can change the nature of diseases by what we do and what we're exposed to and what we're not exposed to. Mm. I imagine that's true of a lot of those uh, childhood illnesses, actually, unless we're having regular contact our natural or acquired immunity needs a boost, just needs that boost by being in contact with it. Yeah, but the, I mean, that's the thing. When yeah. you've got the whole population vaccinated, then you can't get it well, as a child. And so they're going to come back. And yeah. then, I mean, the, 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 there's implications for the mums as well. The, or, you know, the you, if, if you've got daughters that are going to be mums, yeah. I mean, well, now they'll have their own immunity to pass exactly. to the babies. But uh, immunised mums aren't necessarily going to have those measles immunity to um, pass on to their newborn baby so their newborns are going to be right. vulnerable whereas in in a how the way it was the mum would be passing on her antibodies mm. for the first one or two years uh, mm. and then 
you know, then the, when the child was two or three or whatever, they were own immune system would be able to cope with measles and they mm. did it and it, they'd get over it. And mm. All Thank these you. things you've mentioned, like the, the nutrition, the, the sunshine, obviously, would you, are you um, a proponent for using your vitamin D supplementation and do you have some recommendations on that? And just wondered about what you thought about the other types of therapies that have been proposed in relation to the current situation that for people's immunity? Well, uh, certainly vitamin D. I mean, I think generally the guidelines uh, for, for GPs would be, particularly elderly people in rest homes, should be getting vitamin D supplements, uh, you know, because most of them aren't exposed to sunshine. And that's probably year round. So there is a funded uh, vitamin D that's uh, just a once a month capsule. It's a fat-soluble vitamin, so it's stored. Uh, you don't have to take it on a daily basis. Uh, but you do need to be a bit careful because being fat-soluble and stored, you can get too much of it if you, uh, if you, you, know, if you take too much uh, orally. So for elderly people in rest homes, yes, I think uh, your once-a-month capsule of vitamin D uh, is a sensible precaution, particularly in the winter months, but probably if they're not getting, much, getting out much during the summer months as well. For the general population that are healthy and able to get out and about in the summer, I would say get your vitamin D from the sun. You know, I mean, don't go out and get sunburnt and and such like, but get some sun, sun exposure on your skin. Uh, during the summer months, I mean, if you want to be super precise about it, you could go and get a, a vitamin D test, which you'd have to pay for. It's between 50 and $60. Um, but you could test your level of vitamin D at the end of summer. So at the end of February or early March and just see, well, are my stores at a good level? Because they're going to decline during the winter. And so by the end of sort of September, October, your vitamin D levels will probably be at the lowest that they're going to be. Um, but if you've st stored up a good level in, uh, at the end of summer in February, hopefully it'll last during the winter. You know, I mean, when we were allowed to test vitamin D, when it was funded, uh, quite a number of people were low, like the levels were lower than you'd sort of think for an outdoor nation. So you're not allowed to test it now? It's not funded. You're allowed to if you want to pay for it, but yeah, it's not funded. That's odd, isn't it? Seems with all the money being spent this year, right, that um, having a campaign to test people's vitamin D, considering the, all the research that there is out there now saying, showing how amazing it actually is at preventing or, or at least lessening yeah. this, the severity of symptoms, that finding out where people are and then targeting those that need it would have been a really good thing to do. And yeah, I know that Ivor was talking about the low, um, the low rates of vitamin D in the Italian mm. elderly women and versus the Japanese. I think the last vitamin D survey that was here in New Zealand was in the late 2000s, and it showed that there was, I think, about a 5% of our population was uh, critical on the vitamin D and about 25%, so all up about a third had kind of low on the low side of vitamin D, which I thought was quite interesting. I'd like to know how that's changed since then. Yeah, harmless. Mm. Again, there is funded vitamin C, it's a 100 milligram tablet, so that's a fairly small dose. You probably want to take 10 of those all at once, two or three times a day. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, that's what I personally do. If I feel unwell, I start to I take extra vitamin C. Uh, I have a powder, so I don't know exactly how much I get, but. I take it three or four or five times a day, depending on how I'm feeling. Like in a sodium ascorbate sort of form. Yeah. As, um, yeah. yeah, just a powder that I dissolve in water and squeeze yeah. the lemon juice in it and drink it. Yeah. yeah. Um, zinc would be another nutrient that, um, again, I sort of learned a bit more about recently. And so I've taken that. In fact, I first used it for my son's acne. Uh, he had really bad uh, 
uh, acne and I, so I thought right and started instead of using pharmaceuticals first up let's just try we'll see what happens with zinc so I gave yeah. them zinc and oregano oil for its antibacterial activities and I mean the skin was so much better I mean he doesn't take it all the time now and he should but I mean it made us or like it cleared up his skin zinc and oregano oil um, and so I thought, oh, zinc, right, okay, well, it's made a big difference for him, maybe I should take some. So, I mean, I, and then I'd done a, a zinc taste test. Now, I don't know exactly how reliable that is, but I couldn't taste it particularly, so I thought, well, maybe I need some. So I have been taking zinc, and then when I've listened to the, those frontline doctors speaking about hydroxychloroquine and the use of um, zinc with it, um, I thought, oh, well, that's more reason to take zinc. So again, I'll, if the kids have got a cold or whatever, I'd give them extra zinc and vitamin C at the same time. Find that. I'm a fan of smashed garlic. I think. Oh, well, yes, yes. Garlic. garlic. I mean, garlic, yes. ginger, lemon, honey, those things. And absolutely incredible. Yeah. I forced yeah. my kids to have smashed garlic with a little tiny bit of honey. They're used to it now, but uh, it's pretty antisocial, but it's yeah. amazing. I, amazing stuff. Yeah. What has been happening in the in the doctors and medical community about COVID, um, the, the response. Do you have meetings? Like, do they do a Zoom call and let's see what we can do? Or do you get pamphlet? Or how do they get the word out to you or get you involved? I mean, the, and I think The general communication has been a lot of, uh, and, and that, was, that was super stressful, in fact, early in, or at, at the first two or three months of the pandemic was just the sheer volume of emails from the Ministry of Health, from the College of GPs, from our local PHO, from the DHB, sometimes duplicated, sometimes contradictory. And it was just a deluge of information. And it was just, it was impossible to keep up with, you know, the changing criteria for swabbing, how you do it, what you recommend, where the patients go, do they ring, do they turn up, do they go through the car park, do they come in the building? Oh, it was... Uh, you know, it was just, it was information overload. There wasn't sort of one repository where everything was easy to find. Um, and so, and it changed day to day. And I mean, it's, it's continued. So within our practice, so we did institute um, morning meetings. So we'd all get together for 15 minutes or so and just sort of run over, well, what's, what's new today? What's the plan? Are we seeing respiratory patients in both sides or are they still only being seen at, at one site? Um, who's dressing up in all the PPE, who's doing the swabbing. Uh, so my, the practice I worked at uh, became a swabbing centre as well. So we were dealing with our own patients, but we also were swabbing vast numbers. Well, it wasn't me, but the nurses mostly were swabbing um, large numbers of just the general public that um, had symptoms or needed a swab or wanted a swab. Um, so yes, there was great logistical things. But yes, a deluge of emails was the main uh, telling us what to do, not asking us. Uh, I mean, there was maybe one email from the College of GPs asking what our experiences was as GPs with um, coronavirus patients. So, I mean, I hadn't seen any, so I didn't fill it in, but um, a number of GPs replied to that. And so there is a table somewhere of um, how symptomatic, how they were managed, what the, what the GPs did for the first, I don't know, 40, 50 patients. Um, and was there some d discussion with I don't know with your colleagues about the response because uh, we know that we had a pandemic plan from um, oh, I'm not sure what the date our the WHO one is from 2019 quite recent um, which you know advises against all these steps that have been taken do, um, do you guys remember what, if we there's have a, one? there's an influenza one from 2017 isn't there 17 yeah mm, for New Zealand yeah that's what I was curious about too how does the response to this look because you would have been working 
uh, during the swine flu outbreak. And uh, I imagine SARS would have been something that you saw, was it? Oh, well, yes, the, the 2009, the um, swine flu outbreak, that was when I was doing my GP training. Yeah. I don't specifically remember this. I, I know I got the swine, like I got the flu. That was the first and only year I've had the flu. So I remember being sick for two or three days with a fever and chills and and yeah. things and thinking, oh, I've got the flu. <laughs> yeah, but um, as, the, as the, the kind of, yeah, the, the, the way you're expected to manage this, I'm, is this anything like you've seen before? I, well, no, no. I mean, no. It, it's I like it's more extreme than the swine flu thing was. Like we didn't do all the measures that we've taken this year. Um, and in 2003, I was probably on maternity leave. Right. <laughs> and I would have been in the, uh, a hospital at that stage. So I wasn't, I don't specifically remember anything about mm. um, that. But I don't remember doing, I mean, maybe more swabbing during the swine flu thing or 2009 just to, to figure out is it a flu or is it a, the specific strain of the flu that was causing the swine flu. Um, but I don't remember any other specific uh, precautions. Mm. But no, but with regards to um, like uh, communicating with my colleagues, like there were, apart from that morning meeting, just to discuss the practicalities of what we're doing today, what's changed overnight, there wasn't any forum for a philosophical discussion about are we doing the right thing? What are we doing? Do you guys agree with this? Do you think this is right? And I did try on one occasion to ask my colleagues about the the testing and just the fact that I mean this was I don't know three or four months ago when the border workers were having to be tested and I said to them well what do you guys think about this forced testing don't you think people should have a right to you know we've still got right 7.7 the right to decline medical treatment do, do you do you agree with this border testing this was in one of our 15 minute morning meetings and so that you know it wasn't really the forum everyone wants to get on because their lists are so long for people to ring and people to do and work to be done so it wasn't a relaxed sort of place for discussion but I mean the, the comments was oh Alison it's just a swab you know d just deal with it <laughs> it's not a big deal and I'm thinking oh if you lose that right if we don't you know as doctors surely we should be standing up for right 7.7 .7 and just saying well actually you guys have a right to you know and this is where you lawyers need to come mm. in and say well what is the legality of that right I mean can the border workers refuse to have a test I mean are there laws now in place that override their their rights uh, and you know possibly there are in that situation so um and, and then I mean, in my peer groups, I thought, oh, you know, well, actually, a number of the peer groups we didn't have. Usually, we'd have one a month uh, in an evening to see each other and and discuss different things. But again, the there wasn't really a. Um, I wanted to ask. I wanted to say, well, what do you guys think about what we're doing? Do you think it's right? Do you, do you think we're on the right path? But again, it was more about the practicalities. How do we do this? How do we see all these patients? You know, and it wasn't about thinking of, thinking about the bigger picture, really. And I, so I haven't had a, you know, and then I've tried, like our local College of GPs, the Faculty of GPs in Hawke's Bay, I had a dinner, like an end of year um, dinner. And I did say, well, look, I've got questions. Oh, no, that's not the forum for bringing it up. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't really. It was a nice end of year dinner. It would have been a bit of a bore to talk about that. But I mean, there hasn't been a forum for doctors to get together uh, and just discuss, chew over the fat, say, look, is this the right thing to do? And even from the, you know, Ashley Bloomfield uh, did have uh, attend a webinar for GPs 
where we could pose our questions and put questions forward to him that he may or may not answer. And so I, I did send in some questions. I did send in the question about, well, what's the advice about the vitamin C, vitamin D and zinc? They're, you know, because those three are all funded, even though in funny doses and such like, and the zinc, maybe it's not the best form of zinc, but that is funded and vitamin C is funded, vitamin D is funded. So I said, these are funded nutrients. What, you know, should, should we be prescribing them for our patients? Is there any official advice? He chose not to answer that question. So he didn't answer that one. I asked as well, who was counting the cost of the lockdowns? Uh, as opposed to the cost of the coronavirus, like who was counting the costs, like who's weighing up the risks and benefits uh, of the lockdown, you know, and I was thinking, well, uh, who's counting the suicides, who's counting the increased toll of mental health, who's counting the delayed cancer diagnosis, who's counting the toll on um, the people who've lost their livelihoods and are now unemployed and feeling miserable, who's counting the cost to someone who's been sent her brother's ashes from Australia and knowing that nobody was there when he died. You know, there's uh, going to be a, a long-term cost for people that have been in that situation. I mean, if you haven't been able to be present for the birth of your baby or mm. being able to see your grandchild, uh, you know, there's a health cost to that. And I just wanted to know, well, who's actually weighing up all those lives? You know, it's all very well saving these lives on this side, but who's counting the cost for those lives on that side? And he, he did, I think he said that's a good question. <laughs> uh, but then he didn't, he didn't really get to, uh, get to the answer. He said, oh, well, look, there's been a lot fewer road traffic deaths during the lockdown and many fewer accidents and a reduced lot of flu during the, the lockdown. And I thought, well, yeah, okay, but what about all these other lives that we're interfering with and spoiling? So I never got a straight answer from that. And I, I've, again, sent the, on the College of GPs website, there's a ask a question button uh, so I again posed that there, and I didn't really get a um, mm. a satisfactory answer. So I remember um, sending off a Fish and Information Act request quite early on, asking for their um, references for what they were using to base those decisions on, and they basically came back with nothing. So they they had right. nothing that they were looking at in terms of counting the cost of the lockdowns and of yeah. their. The well, there's there's the doing. economic cost, but there's the health cost as well. Mm. And yeah. surely if you yeah, have yeah. health intervention, you need to weigh up more who's benefiting and who's being harmed by this. And I mean, to my mind, you know, I think the harm that's being caused probably is now outweighing the lives that we've saved. Mm. But I can't, you know, and I mean, now we're in such a tricky situation that, you know, I don't know who's going to volunteer to start counting the cost, but there's a huge cost out there there's a huge health cost to what we've done and that's going to be ongoing mm. uh, and it would and be I completely think... unscientific to ignore that and well, to not so. make and, and that, that's what has frustrated me from the start well hang on a minute are we really doing the right thing and having a discussion i would have thought with, with such a big decision that is affecting all of us there would be robust debate and discussion and not just this is what we're doing it this is the only way get on and do it uh, mm -hmm. I would have thought that like uh, as GPs we haven't been asked what what do we think what like what what are our individual experiences with you know with sick COVID patients but also with the other side of um you know, the costs that people are bearing from the lockdowns and from the uncertainty and from the unemployment. No one's actually, as far as I've seen, asked GPs, well, you know, and we're on the front line, surely, yeah. uh, seeing people day to day. I mean, m mostly by phone now or by video, but uh, still some in person. Um, but nobody's actually, you know, we're being told what to do and how to do it. 
but not being asked for our opinion. And I think, you know, I'd like to hear, I'd like to know who's advising the government, but I'd like to have a whole variety of people advising the government, not just a few epidemiologists in their ivory towers. You know, we need people on the ground that are seeing real patients, the hospital doctors that are seeing the delayed cancer diagnosis, the ICU doctors that are treating the COVID patients. You know, I think we need to have a, a big discussion with a whole lot of people there mm. if we're making these decisions. And I just don't understand why that, well, I can't see that that's happening. No, because it, it, it strikes me as a nonsense that the people that are speaking out are all miraculously in agreement. I mean, when does that yeah. just doesn't well, happen? Yes, that's right. Surely we're, you know, amongst doctors, there'll be different opinions. Absolutely. And we're not hearing a variety of opinions. No. It, you know, and I mean, surely if you've, for the whole country to have only one plan and not even discuss and so different alternatives there would be, even if we reject the alternatives, to not even discuss but, them seems a little bit odd to me. But it's not even as if it's not even as if this was a plan that was devised as something that could be used. This is, seems to be made up on the go, not based in anything that's been established or done before. And this changing information about long-standing science, like say around masks, with no apparent debate or everyone's sort of apparently towing the line I just find it really baffling but I also wonder um, if more doctors felt like you and had questions and uh, decided they would be keen to say something if there were enough doctors how much of an impact do you think that could have do you feel you have any power at all uh, as doctors as a group would or uh, do you well, think uh, possibly Yes, uh, maybe. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many other people have questions. Uh, you know, I mean, I, there are a few, but I, I, I don't know amongst my colleagues. I think most of them think that we're doing the right thing. But I, I mean, I don't know whether that's whether that's because they're too busy and they haven't actually got time to sort of think of the bigger picture and wonder, or whether they're scared to say anything if they do think differently. Or I, I'm not quite sure what people are. Um, no, I was thinking, um, I think it can be massive because it's not just about if you speak out in a group, it's that if you speak out and a group of doctors then speak out and then a little bigger group and then the population at large has confidence. What happens successfully now is the media and the propaganda shut that down. Yeah, yeah. So, well, there's certainly been a, a, an ability, I like an inability, I would think, to have a different opinion or... Mm. Or ask questions. You know, again, with the College of GPs on this ask a question uh, thing, I rang them and spoke to the chap who's coordinating it and said, well, can we not see the questions other people are asking, you know, so that I'm not repeating myself and asking a question that's been answered. And so I can see what sort of questions other people have got. You know, it may be questions about how do we get our PPE or mm. I'm worried about not having enough masks or whatever. But I mean, I'd love to know what other questions, what questions other GPs are asking. I mean, apparently there's been over a thousand questions, I think, but you can't see them. That's not like a, it's not there for everyone to, maybe I need to revisit that and just ask again. But I just yeah. thought, well, I mean, it might save them some time if we're all asking the same questions, but I've got no idea. Where were the GPs questions are. directed to? That, well, it's, it's on the College of, I mean, I think if anyone Googled the College of GPs website, you could see, ask a question. I don't know whether I have to be logged, maybe I have to be logged in, I'm not sure, but it's on the College of GPs and then uh, Dr. Peter Moody answers them. Um, I'm conscious of the time, but I also really would love to know if you're able to speak to us about 
um, these the, the proposed COVID um, vaccines and your thoughts there? If I mean, there's a whole lot of vaccines potentially out there, but the Pfizer one that's been, the Pfizer-BioNTech one that's been approved in the UK and various other places now, uh, is a totally new technology, messenger RNA. So it's a genetic-based vaccine. So that hasn't been used before. And to my mind, the testing period of only a few months is far too small to be able to say, hand on heart, that that's safe for the whole population. Uh, so when somebody's having informed consent, you've, you know, I mean, I don't think a doctor can say, look, it's being proven safe. Uh, it's been followed for a few months. I mean, I want it to be followed for a few years to find out, well, what, what are the long-term effects? And I want to know, um, you know, for the fertility. So, so the German doctor, Wolfgang Wodard, I think was the one I watched just uh, who had a, question or a concern about that the protein the spike protein so the mrna um, vaccine gets into your cells and turns your own cells into factories making the spike protein and that spike protein of the coronavirus apparently is very similar to syncytin a protein that's found in the human placenta so if your body's busy being a factory making the spike protein and it happens to cross react with a placenta which we don't know because it hasn't been studied in pregnant women uh, potentially you'd be making antibodies against your placental tissue, which means a pregnancy wouldn't be able to be sustained. And so if I was a fertile woman planning to have children in the future, I'd be wanting to at least have nine months of <laughs> nine and months of testing, probably more, but yeah. a, a minimum of nine months and have and see, well, can you get pregnant? Can you sustain a pregnancy? Uh, with it I mean nine months to me is still a too short period of time but you know a bare minimum they, they've uh, specifically excluded not only pregnant women but anyone who's planning to get pregnant so there's a, not a hope of having any of this sort of information coming out no, no, no I mean if there's a question okay. about it to mm. my mind that should be answered before we mm. tell people that it's safe mm. Um, I mean it may turn out that that's a load of rubbish and, and the protein doesn't cross react and there's no issue but uh, if it's a possibility and we're planning to give it to the whole population, then I think we need more information about yeah. that. And you need to be looking for it because that's the other thing. I mean, presumably they won't be looking for any sort of long-term autoimmune. No, no. Well, that would be another question with cancer. Uh, I mean, yeah. there'll be none of, they won't be looking for any of this. I would have thought Alzheimer's. No, well, I mean, the question also is whether the, like of the 44,000 people, whoever have been in the Pfizer trial, um, you know, half of them have had the vaccine, half of them had the placebo, and I'm still not quite clear whether the placebo was just saline or whether it was another vaccine, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, they're going to um, potentially give all the people that missed out on the vaccine, because it's been proven safe and effective, they're going to get the vaccine, all the people that got the placebo. So we're not actually then going to have a placebo group to follow and find out, well, what are the rates of diabetes five years henceforth? What are the rates of autoimmune conditions how many pregnancies have there been in each group um, how many we, deaths well, how many, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If, you know if you if you get rid of the placebo group so mm. it seems a little bit that's a common unusual. thing though isn't it they did that with hpv as well they did yeah yeah well, yes, so they so actually safety... just annihilate their control yeah destroy the placebo group 
Yes, yeah. or, or don't even, you know, give them an aluminium-containing adjuvant, I think, with the HPV vaccine. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there wasn't actually a true placebo with that one. Uh, you know, and if it's the aluminium that's causing the problems, then the rates are going to be the same in both groups. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yes, I'd be slightly hesitant to, you know, I would struggle to tell patients if they were asking and wanted to know, is this safe doctor? I would be struggling to say yes I can tell you that it's perfectly safe and from a medic from a professional point of view though it would seem um uh wrong for other doctors to say that I mean they have all the information that, that they have they, can, they have brains they can think about well, it uh, I mean they will have the advice from the Ministry of Health that this vaccine is safe and effective it's been and they just go forth and administer it uh, so, the, so just like the whole thing that's happened today with all of the measures that have been taken and the, the changing, this apparent changing science on things, uh, you, just, you just swallow it rather than say, oh, hang on a minute. I, I, I mean, are you ever encouraged as doctors to ask questions and to, no, wait. No, no, I mean, often there's not time to think or you no, know, just no. do as we're told. But um, Huge responsibility, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. but I mean, if patients ask, if patients need to actually ask their doctors, well, yeah. is this safe? How can you assure me it's safe when it's only had a few months of... I mean, you know, I think what it comes down to, in fact, is you need to make your own decision and weigh up your own uh, risk-benefit, which will be different for everyone. For some people, the risk of catching the virus is pretty, is pretty small, uh, or not catching it. I mean, the risk of catching it depends on the... Yeah, where we're at. But I mean, the risk of getting, getting severely unwell from it uh, will vary person to person, depending on uh, your own personal factors, uh, you know, and the ones that we've already talked about, which are potentially modifiable, you mm. know, how healthy your immune system is, um, which is a, a lot under your own control. So some people might decide, well, actually, I, I'm, I know I've got an immune system, I value my immune system, I look after my immune system, I'm going to trust my immune system. And I'll go with that thanks whereas other people might think well actually my immune system's probably not in a very good order uh, maybe I do need that vaccine because I'm at risk of getting a severe disease and so they might decide the other way and everyone should be encouraged to make that decision mm. uh, I mean what happens in reality is that the nurses will be administering uh, the vaccine and because it comes in five like well if it's the Pfizer one anyway I don't know which one New Zealand will get but the Pfizer one comes five doses in one vial and they've got to be administered fairly quickly from my understanding once you've made up the solution you've got to mm. get them into the into their individual syringes and, and into the patients so whether they're going to be doing group informed consent <laughs> dis discussions or quite how that's going to work I'm not sure true, to do, do true informed consent for a person you know takes a bit of time you've actually got to know the patient's history you've got to know I mean what their philosophical thoughts are as well as um as well as their medical history and, and have a discussion. I mean, the standard GP consultation is 15 minutes and people don't generally come to the GP to specifically discuss vaccines. It's usually, oh, by the way, do you think that vaccine's any good, doc? At the end of your 15 minutes. And so you haven't actually got time to have a, a proper informed discussion about it. Yeah. Um, so, and, if, and, and this whole but weighing up risk and benefit, of course, there's the assumption that they will cut. The assumption is when you're weighing up risk and, risk and benefit is that you can be reasonably impartial about that. But if you've been scared all year by the media to believe yeah. that um, this, you know, this thing is bigger than Godzilla, then of course it's going to seem like an enormous risk and the benefit is going to feel large in comparison mm -hmm. to the risk. So it's, um, 
it's almost not, like not to mention all the things to do with border opening and resuming your work mm. again and you know having industries kick off again if that's potential or allowing you to travel or you know all the other things that are going to be linked alongside that mm. it will be swaying people um, even if they don't want it mm. I think they call that coercion <laughs> I think they do <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, this is where I think the legal opinion as to what are people's rights, like what if nurses decide, well, actually, it's not safe enough for me to take, but I'm meant to be here administering it. I'm on the front line treating people. What if I don't want to get it? Mm. Uh, am I, can I be dismissed from my workplace? So I don't know if anyone legally is actually looking into that, but if they're not, somebody needs to be. Yeah, <laughs> this, it's just, oh, I just finding it so surprising that people are, um, so willing to just agree and oh, I, I don't know I just yeah I don't I just don't get it that you just agree without thinking about it and yeah. if you don't agree you don't feel that you could say anything um I, I appreciate that it's scary for people but this is huge this is really huge mm. the implications and they're so uh yeah they're just so, they're going to be long-term, such long-term implications to all of this. We would love to have you back on and maybe have a, maybe a regular slot, ask Alison, something like that, <laughs> <laughs> when you have your lifestyle medicine all um, in the new year. And, and, and again, just for general, because so many people need to hear this information from mm. somebody with your, you know, integrity, qualifications. We really, really appreciate you. People are going to really appreciate hearing you today and, and again in the future. Yeah, right, okay. Well, it's much. slightly out of my comfort zone to be doing this, but <laughs> there we are. It is for all of us. Don't worry about it. <laughs> did, did you have anything that you wanted to share this time? Thing, any thoughts on where we are or some uh, maybe a hopeful message, something you can see? Well, I just think that people need to enjoy their summer and actually um, get some sunshine for vitamin D, eat the fruit and veggies, get fresh air and exercise, connect with their family and friends. All of those things will help their immune system. And I mean, I'd love it if the government would actually say something to that effect as well. Just let people know what they can do to make sure that heading into next winter, you're in the best shape possible. Mm -hmm.